Hi everyone, this is Dr. Whited and welcome to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. This is the second and final round of anonymous questions submitted by my summer abnormal psychology class. Uh, So if uh, you're not familiar with this series, uh, this is to keep the podcast going in the times when it's harder to meet with my colleagues, though we'll be back in person here this coming semester. Um, so I, it gives me a chance to talk on the podcast and, 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 you know, a little more personally answer the questions that my, my students ask. Now, they submit these anonymously, but they may say things that, you know, that refer to certain facts that I don't want to put out there into the, into the world. So I, I censor them as much as I need to to kind of keep it, you know, can maintain that anonymity, even though I have no idea who's answering these questions or asking these questions. So... Anyway, let's go ahead and get started. So, question number one. Good morning. How does body image interfere with the mental state? This is a good question. There's a lot of research out there on body image and how people feel about themselves. Um, And this can be kind of, if they have negative uh, feelings about their body, can can be pretty detrimental to the way they feel. Um, It can bring about a lot of anxiety, especially in social situations. It can bring about some mood issues of feeling down about themselves. Um, One specific example of this is weight stigma. Uh, If you're curious about this, Dr. Carroll's uh, here at East Carolina University studies this pretty significantly. It's a really neat area of research. And what we find is that when people who experience a lot of stigma uh, because of their body, especially because of their weight, um, tend to experience more mental health issues. Not always in the diagnostic sense, but at least they experience more feelings of feeling depressed or feeling anxious. They might hold themselves back from doing things and going to things because they've gotten this message from the people around them and from society in general that there's something wrong with them um, because of their weight, which isn't true, but that is what the, you know, the feeling that they get from the predominant kind of uh, thin uh, and weight-focused culture that we live in. So yeah, so those are just some of the ways that, you know, body image can can interfere with how we feel. Next question. What has been the historical prevalence of depression in the United States? Have there been an increased rate of depression over the years? And what may contribute to this change over time? Well, I don't know. uh, I'm not really familiar with the data and I don't know the best. uh, uh, I don't know uh, of if we had the best data from like, you know, the 1800s and things like that when we measured depression differently and that sort of thing. Um, But I can say that pretty much over the past 10 to 20 years, it's remained uh, about the same. So about 6 to 10% of the population uh, have been experiencing depression. Now, there, there have been spikes in certain groups, although that overall prevalence rate has remained about the same with about, in any given year, about, you know, 6 to 10% of the population meeting criteria for depression. So we're talking about, you know, major depressive disorder, not just experiencing depression, but, or feeling down, but having the full-on diagnosis. So depressed and down more days than not, um, lack of interest or pleasure in the things they typically enjoy more days than not, and then a cacophony of, of, of at least five or so more other symptoms that, that are associated with that, with one of those two major symptoms being there, um, in, in any case of, of someone experiencing depression. So we, you know, we saw spikes in, in rates among adolescents at some point, um, and, uh, and probably some other groups too. I'd have to like really dig into the literature. Like I said, I answer these anonymous questions kind of off the cuff. I don't necessarily research each one, but the prevalence has overall been about the same, um, for the last, 
I don't know, say 50 years or so uh, in the U.S. at least. But we have seen spikes in certain areas. Good question. Do you think the younger adults are more attentive to their mental health than the older adults? Um, I think there is a generational difference here. Um, psychology and many other fields have worked hard to um, destigmatize mental illness. There's a lot of work to be done here and a lot of progress that needs to be made when it comes to destigmatizing mental illness. But I think this is a bit anecdotal. And when I say anecdotal, it means that this is a bit my own observation and not necessarily research that I'm quoting. But I've noticed that younger people nowadays are much more uh, willing to discuss their mental state, uh, willing to discuss their mental health, and hopefully that means they're also more willing to seek treatment, although I don't know if that's true or not. I hope that's true. I think this is a generational difference as we've seen more resources and less stigma. Again, there's still a lot of stigma, but you know we've, we're getting closer to our goal. Um, I expect that this will change as the current generation ages, so I don't think we'll see as big of a difference between folks in their 70s and folks in their 20s in terms of their willingness to discuss um, mental health issues and their attention to their mental health. Um, because I think that the folks who are young will carry that through. So I don't think this is an age-related thing. I think it's a generational thing. Um, and all in all, I think it's a good change. Now, that being said, there are lots of older adults that are attentive to their mental health, that seek treatment when needed. You know, I'm not saying that they that, that is not um, something that happens frequently. But I would observe, I'd say, it's something that's a bit less common. Next question. Do you think that people who are incarcerated receive enough mental health support as they should? Uh, and do you think locking them up behind bars does more damage than it does helping them? In your opinion, how can improvements be made? Well, this is a whole branch called forensic psychology. Typically, when we think of forensic psychology, we think of, you know, profiling and that kind of thing. But a lot of forensic psychologists actually work within the prison systems to try to um, help inmates. Um, and sometimes they do that by treating mental health issues among folks that are there. Um, sometimes they do it by trying to help them rehabilitate and integrate back into the world uh, and those sorts of things. Um, there are not a lot of them, so, and there are not a lot of, of any type of, I, I mentioned forensic psychologists, but there are not a lot of any type of mental health care provider really in the prison systems and working with people who are, you know, in prison or on parole or, or those sorts of things. So this is true across the board. You know, we need more mental health care workers. Um, but, you know, I think especially within the prison system, it's a challenging population to work with. You know, folks have had a lot of, um, a lot of disadvantages, not a lot of opportunity. Uh, so it makes it a little difficult for them to learn ways of being and ways of living that are going to work well for them. Um, I think that the prison system could potentially be helpful if it offered people resources and training and that sort of thing. And it does to an extent, but it's not incredibly successful at that. I think most people are just kind of warehoused until they finish their sentence and then put back out. And most of the data we have support that. And most people are pretty likely to reoffend, especially when they're put back in the same environment for which they left, which of course they are. The environment determines a whole lot of our behavior. So of course that happens. Um, so without changes in their opportunity, their skills, that sort of thing, it's not really going to be as helpful. So I think improvements can be made. Um, I think decriminalizing um, certain things, especially uh, um, I'm not a proponent of marijuana legalization, but I'm certainly, I, I'm still kind of have mixed feelings about that. Um, but I am a proponent of, um, decriminalization. And part of the reason for that is that the, 
um, people are incarcerated for minor drug offenses, and that you know takes them away. They come out, they can't get a job because of a criminal record. They don't have useful skills. I mean, it's just it creates a cycle um, of problems for those folks. And then if they have children, problems for their children as well because they grow up in in with less advantages than than other folks. So I, I'm a proponent of decriminalizing um, certain you know minor offenses like. Um, you know, small amount of marijuana possession or something like that, or recreational use in a place where it's not legal. Um, because I think that really can ruin people's lives for something that it doesn't deserve to be ruined by, basically. Um, so I think that some reforms like that could be helpful um, in getting, you know, getting people the help they need if they have an issue with a substance use uh, disorder or something along those lines. Now, I'm not an expert in forensic psychology or, or policy, um, but, you know, specifically this question asks for my opinion. So I think decriminalization and better education and reform opportunities within the prison system could improve that system. Next question. It seems the more naturalist side of treatment and the medical side conflict quite often and seem to put uh, heads in their idea of proper treatments. Medication obviously serves fantastic purpose, but is there a place for natural supplements to aid in mental health in more mild cases? For example, a person struggles to find an SSRI they are satisfied with to treat depression and anxiety. Is it possible that a natural herbal sup supplements like uh, ashwagandha are a good option along with therapy? Uh, the answer is no. And the reason is that these supplements have not shown evidence to actually be helpful for mental health issues. Um, some supplements have, you know, really small associations with improvements, like, for example, um, fish oil supplements among people with heart disease um, in a study or two have shown improvements on depressive symptoms, not treating depression, but at least lowering depressive symptoms. But also, you know, that could be for a lot of different reasons, and those weren't really extremely well-controlled studies. Um, St. John's wort was real popular for a while because it does act a little bit on the serotonin system. But um, if you go to um, uh, National Center for Complementary and Integrative Medicine, NCCIM, they've changed their name a few times, but it's currently NCCIM. They have a great website that reviews the evidence base for all different types of herbal and vitamin supplements and whether or not they seem like they could work for the um, issues or symptoms or disorders they're, they're intended to treat. Um, the answer is no for 90% of those herbs, and there's some, some weak to moderate evidence for some of them being effective. So uh, ashwagandha, no, uh, not effective. Um, St. John's wort, no, not really, um, not great evidence. It, they don't, even if they do have some degree of efficacy, they don't have the same degree of efficacy as an SSRI. Um, SSRIs are going to work better. Even though they have greater side effects and there's some other issues with them, um, they would work better than any kind of herbal supplement. The standard of care, though, if someone wants to use a medication like an SSRI, the standard of care is to use that along with treatment. That is the highest standard of care. Um, mental health treatment, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, behavioral therapy, behavioral activation for depression, exposure therapy for, um, for anxiety or anxiety disorders, um, are the most effective. Um, sometimes those can be combined with medication, especially when it's treating depression or something like that. Combining with medication en enhances the effect. Um, but otherwise, you know, a combination or therapy alone is really the gold standard. Now, keep in mind, I'm a psychologist, so of course I'm advocating for therapy, um, but the data support that. Um, you know, all the clinical trials that we see 
um, for most disorders show that you know therapy alone or a combination um, are the best approach. Unless you're talking disorders that have a strong organic basis, like um, uh, schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder um, or things like that. Those, of course, need a medication in order for treatment to work. Um, and the in order for excuse me, they need a medication that is the most effective treatment. And then therapy and psychotherapy can be a helpful adjunct in order to help the person maintain the gains they make by taking their medication regularly and help to manage their life in ways that doesn't exacerbate problems or exacerbate their illness. Um, so yeah, the, the reason that the, the naturalist side of things and the medical side conflict when it comes to medications is because when put to evidence, the naturalist, the herbal um, remedies do not tend to show evidence. They might show a placebo effect, um, but they don't show actual evidence when in a, in a well-controlled trial where you're controlling for that placebo effect. Next question. How do you support someone with borderline who gets very emotional but also does not allow them to get comfortable with lashing out against you? I uh, hope this makes sense. Uh, so the challenge with folks who um, have borderline personality disorder is that they tend, they have very kind of tumultuous relationships and their behavior contributes to that. So someone with borderline personality disorder um, may push people away when they most need support. Um, and um, they tend to have a very black and white view of their relationships. Now, I'm generalizing. Not everyone with borderline personality acts like this all the time, but generally, they have a more black and white view of their relationships. So someone is either the perfect partner or the perfect parent or the perfect brother, sister, etc. They're either the perfect version or they're terrible and awful and have always been terrible and awful. It's, it's hard for them to kind of manage that gray area because their emotions drive them so strongly. Um, so how do you support someone that's experiencing that, um, well, it can be challenging to support someone. Um, sometimes it can be best not to kind of give in to the drama. So if someone is, is yelling and screaming and saying, well, you know, you, if you can remain calm in that situation, some of the best things to do is like, it sounds like you need a break right now. You need to take some time to yourself where, cause I'm, I, me being here is very upsetting to you. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and go and let you go. Um, that may work with some people. Everyone's different. So that may work with some people. Uh, you know, other things to do is kind of support this person getting therapy. Uh, dialectical behavior therapy is a pretty effective treatment for borderline personality disorder. It's an intense treatment and it's challenging to do. But if someone is doing that, you can be very supportive by helping them with that therapy. So if there are exercises they need to do or things they're trying to do um, and they want to talk to you about that, you can then help them to do their homework, basically, the, from that therapy, um, I think would probably be the best way to help. But um, in the absence of that, I think, you know, remaining calm, listening to the person, you know, hear, showing that you're hearing what they say, saying, I, I'm hearing that you're really upset with me. I, I don't feel like I did anything to you, but I, I'm really hearing that you're upset with me because something I did upset you. I just want to acknowledge that just to make sure that they're heard. Because sometimes the function of that um, high emotionality is to get the attention they need, get the validation they need, and, and that sort of thing. So giving it to them in a calm way can be helpful with that. Uh, and being sure to be thankful when they're not overly emotional. You know, when they're not overly emotional and they're not, and, and you're really enjoying your time with them, just to, to point that out. Say, I really love it when we can just kind of hang out and be relaxed together and, 
and, and things can be just fun and pleasant and easy. So again, every person is different and what's going to work for them can be very different. But those are just kind of a few thoughts that come to mind when I, when I read this question. But it is very challenging when you have um, a lot of that raw emotion coming at you. Next question. I was curious to know if people who take prescribed medications for bipolar disorder, if they typically stay in their meds throughout their life, or does it vary case to case? Uh, typically, they need to be on those medications throughout their life. Um, the medications for bipolar disorder, especially lithium, um, tend to, um, they, they regulate emotions. So, you know, bipolar disorder is, is, uh, consists of the, the highs of manic episodes, which are usually pretty short term, you know, like, you know, two, three, two weeks at most is a long one. Um, uh, they can go longer than that, but that that's a long one. Um, and then, you know, on the other side of that, the depressive episodes, which typically last quite a long time. Um, so the, those ups and downs, the, even though they, they're not, they're not, they're taking place over a long timeline, right? Like ups and downs an up and two downs may happen over the course of six months or years or something like that. It's not having someone be real excited and then roll down within like, you know, three days or something like that. That's, that's a different issue. Um, so in order to keep the highs and lows kind of in check a little bit more, if you imagine a graph, instead of having the line graph go up and down and up and down and spike all over the place, bringing it kind of like shortening the highs and shortening the lows, um, to a, a, a range that works for the person is, is what kind of what the medication does in terms of affecting the person's behavior. Um, but again, but you know, bipolar disorder has a very strong organic component. There's a, there's a lot of, of brain differences that are occurring for someone who has bipolar disorder. And so those medications are needed to keep things in check. Um, and typically yes, for the rest of the person's life. That's why medication adherence is so important for someone who's experiencing bipolar disorder. So the other thing about medications with bipolar disorder is that they help prevent manic episodes. And what we find is the fewer manic episodes someone has, uh, the fewer they're going to have in the future. So basically every manic episode is a risk factor for having another one or having a more intense one. So for someone who definitely has bipolar disorder, I mean, it's super rare. It's like 1% of the population. Um, so it has to be appropriately diagnosed, which is difficult to do. But when it's appropriately diagnosed and treated, medication stays on board to prevent the person having manic episodes, which could then lead to more manic episodes and even more intense manic episodes. So that's, that's why the medication is so important. It typically stays on for, you know, most of the person's life. Next question. When is anxiety considered a disorder and getting in the way of your life? I know everyone experiences anxiety in their life, but what diagnosis um, makes it a mental disorder? Now, this is a, this is a really great question because this is a real common misconception. Um, people tend to talk colloquially about anxiety as in, I have anxiety. Well, yes, we all have anxiety. We all experience anxiety. Um, it's only considered a mental disorder when it falls into a specific category with a specific impairment. So, for example, social anxiety disorder, when someone has a lot of anxiety around social situations that is really impairing their life. Um, generalized anxiety disorder, which is the crappiest name for an anxiety disorder ever, because really it's about chronic worry. So someone who worries about things that might happen so much and across so many situations that it is impairing. So 
generalized anxiety disorder really should be called, I don't know, something like chronic worry disorder, which sounds also stupid, but at least it's descriptive. Um, generalized anxiety disorder does not mean generally anxious. There really is no diagnosis for just feeling anxious a lot. Let me, let me say that again. There's no diagnosis for just feeling anxious a lot. Not to say that that's not a problem that a therapist could help with um, or that, that medication may be helpful for. I would definitely recommend a therapist for, for something like that over a medication. But again, I'm a psychologist, so I'm biased. But I, the, what I hear commonly, both in my patients and in and, and people I meet around town and stuff like that, um, is that they, you know my friend has anxiety. It's like, that's not a mental disorder. No matter how severe it is, it's not a mental disorder um, unless it falls into a specific category. So we, and when it falls into a specific category, that means that someone experiences a lot of anxiety surrounding specific situations and it causes specific impairments and problems. Now, chronic stress can look like feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, that, you know, can be something that someone can work on. There's treatments for that. You know, there are ways we have of managing stress. Um, and I think that, you know, the idea that anxiety, quote unquote, anxiety is a mental health issue is problematic because I hear so many people say, my anxiety won't let me or my anxiety gets in the way of, um, like it's some kind of thing that exists within them um, that blocks them from doing the things that are important to them. And that's just not the case. I mean, that's not true of any like anxiety disorder, the one, the category anxiety disorder that includes like generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder. That's not true of them either. But people especially latch on to that when they say, I have anxiety, and it blocks them from doing things that they want to do. That's, that's really not the case. There's not something inside of them that's blocking them. It's just that they've experienced a lot of stress and a lot of pressure or, or something along those lines um, that has caused them to want to avoid anxiety, to stay away from feeling the anxiety that anyone in their situation would norm- naturally feel. And so they develop ways of avoiding it. And one way of avoiding it is to say, I have anxiety, I can't do that. I have anxiety, I can't go out tonight. I have anxiety, I can't take this test. I have anxiety, I can't do that. Um, It just becomes a way of kind of pushing away the things that scare them and cause them distress. Now, the cure for that is not just to like, you know, dismiss the like, oh, I don't have a problem. I, I shouldn't have a problem and I don't have a problem. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am saying is that the problem is more about what's going on in their life around them and how they're dealing with it more so than any thing that exists within them. So good question. And I didn't specifically answer your question because it brought up kind of a misunderstanding that I wanted to, to kind of correct, but I hope that was, that was helpful. Last question. Um, so this one is by res- in response to a student who posted something on the discussion boards we have for the class and wanted me to elaborate on it. So their question is, um, uh, let me see here. I want to know more about how you think the government should be getting veterans who are experiencing PTSD therapy for free and what type of therapy would help with PTSD and especially severe cases of it. Um, so there's two questions there. It's a little bit of my opinion and value judgment that you know all veterans who go on to develop PTSD either during service or afterwards should receive treatment for it. That's kind of my opinion, you know, and I think that they shouldn't have to pay for that. Um, The VA does cover a lot of that and that's, you know, that is at no cost to someone, but, you know, veterans, the the VA hospitals, Veterans Association hospitals 
um, are are open to veterans that have certain financial um, challenges. You know, it's not always there. There are some people, and I can't remember all the specifics of it. There are some people who are not covered by the VA, even if they're veterans. And I think really everyone should. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in that, but I'm, that that is my understanding of it. So then the question is, what kind of treatment should they get? Well, even if they go to a VA, they don't always get the gold standard treatments. There are two treatments that have risen above all other treatments for PTSD. Now, let me let me take a step back and explain what PTSD is. So PTSD is this very um, severe response to a traumatic event. Um, if we're talking about veterans, it might be um, being injured themselves or seeing their their um, their colleagues die, um, or not being able to rescue someone, or uh, in, inadvertently killing a civilian or advertently killing a civilian. It could be anything like that. Many, many things can qualify as a traumatic event. Um, for a certain portion, proportion of people who experience a traumatic event, especially if they re- experience repeated traumatic events, um, they develop PTSD, which they, I can't quote all the criteria to you, but they have a heavy avoidance of things that remind them of that stressor, be it you know, it could be people's voices, colors, places, you know, during folks from the Vietnam era had trouble with helicopter sounds and explosions. And, and, well, a lot of veterans have trouble with explosions. Fourth of July can be tough. Um, and things like that. So they avoid things that remind them of it. They might have dreams about it. They have a lot of physiological arousal. They have flashbacks, you know, any combination of of those and, and other symptoms that I can't all just bring to mind. I don't have the criteria for PTSD necessarily memorized. Um, so folks experiencing that, uh, at first, you know, everyone thought the best treatment was to kind of get them to relax and, and, and things like that. And, and kind of like give into this, um, this avoidance that they should just be kind of like put away in a safe place where they didn't have to be exposed to all the things that were bothering them. But that has a counterproductive effect. And over years and years of research, what we found is that people who, are able to gain the experience of exposure to the things that frighten them. Learn to tolerate those things. There's new learning that happens to where their brain learns that that doesn't have to be scary. You know, PTSD is a protective response. Our brain is trying to protect us. Something was horribly life-threatening. And so our brain is saying, stay the heck away from that thing and anything that looks like that thing because it's horribly dangerous and it could kill you. And our brain just wires that way real fast. It's a sympathetic nervous system thing. It just makes that learning really, really strong. But in a, from just a, you know, a, few, a single or a few incidents. So we need to rewire our brain. Now, the brain never unwires, so that learning is always there. But we can layer on so much new learning that it doesn't even matter that that old learning is there. It's like, imagine your least favorite food. To me, it's peas. Okay, I hate peas. But if I put like a nice crackle topping on top and a lot of cheese, maybe some mashed potatoes and some ground beef, suddenly I've got a shepherd's pie and I love shepherd's pie. Um, so all that new learning takes place. The peas are still in there, you know, and I, if, they, if I can make a choice, the peas wouldn't be in there. Just let me say that. But my wife likes the peas and she makes the shepherd's pie. So, you know, I'm a sous chef, not the master chef. Um, and so that's what the, the, the goes on kind of the analogy of what goes on in the brain when someone does exposure therapy. You layer on new learning that says, this is all okay. There was nasty shit in the past and we've, it happened. We're not going to forget that. We're not going to deny that. But we can learn to 
live the fullness of life and the richness of life and enjoy all these other parts of it, even with that other part that we would really prefer wasn't there. Um, so there are two treatments that really do this the best, that do exposure-based treatments the best. And those are cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy, CPT and PE. So cognitive processing therapy um, involves uh, really working on the trauma narrative. So the person does a lot of writing, a lot of reading what they've written about the traumatic experience, and talking about building new meaning from that. Now, I'm not an expert in this, and I don't have much experience with it, but this is my understanding of what it looks like. Um, and that really helps the person to, um, to, uh, to overcome this. And with a lot of repetition, of refining and redoing and re, you know, reading through that trauma um, narrative over and over and over again with a therapist, um, they get better. Prolonged exposure follows a similar thing. It's a, little, it's a little more focused on the exposure itself as opposed to what meaning comes from this. So in this one, the, I'm pretty well versed in this one. This involves two main components. One is imaginal exposure and one is in vivo exposure. So in vivo basically means real life exposure. So if someone is afraid of certain places, events, or people, they make small goals to build up their tolerance so they can engage with those people, those places, etc., in a way that helps them. So let's say we're talking about a Vietnam veteran who has trouble um, going out into the woods because it reminds him of being in Vietnam, right? So at first we may um, prescribe him, if he agrees to this, at first we may prescribe him just going for walks through a trail in the woods where there aren't as many trees around because the trees make it a little worse. And then maybe going for walks um, in trails that are a little more wooded. And then maybe going for walks in trails that are heavily wooded, and then maybe going off trail. So basically building up his tolerance for being exposed to things that remind him of the traumatic experience. Now that would take place over weeks and weeks, not just like all at once. We're not trying to, you know, scare the person. We're trying to help them go into a situation where they feel comfortable, but the scary stuff is still there. Okay. So that's just one example, but you would do a whole bunch of those exercises. The other place is the imaginal exposure. And in this, the person sits back quietly, um, usually with their eyes closed, and talks through the trauma like they're there. So the goal is almost to re-experience it. But that's happening in the therapy room, in a safe place. Their brain will be terrified. Their brain will be telling them, get out of here. This is terrifying. Why are we doing this? But really, they're sitting in a comfortable chair and just talking. And so eventually the brain catches on <laughs> and realizes that, you know, thinking about this memory sucks, but it's not dangerous. It's not something that's going to hurt me or kill me. And we have to teach our brain that. Our brain is, it's meant to keep us alive and keep us surviving. And that's what it thinks it's doing. Um, but when we do exposure exercises like that, it helps us to, um, put on some new learning to where we know, okay, memory is there, but memory is not dangerous. Memory can't hurt us. Um, and lo and behold, you see symptoms like nightmares and flashbacks and things like that reduce um, with that. Now, those are the two gold standard therapies, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. Those are what I personally would like to see all veterans who are experiencing PTSD get. I would love that to happen. That would be the best scientific practice that we could get. 
And in my opinion, the best moral practice that we could do is to take care of people who have, who have defended us. Um, so that's my opinion on it. Uh, I will say that, well, my opinion is about what should be done. It's not a matter of opinion whether CPT and PE are the best. They are the best empirically. They've even been compared to each other, and they tend to be about equivalent. Um, people who are in one camp or the other and more experience with one camp or the other tend to want theirs to come out on top. But frankly, all the evidence shows they work about equally well. So basically, if you know how to do both, you'd sit down with a patient and say, which one sounds best to you? <laughs> um, if you only know how to do one really well, then you do that one. That's pretty much how it works. Um, there are other treatments for PTSD out there. They don't work as well in head-to-head -head competition, but they work okay. The controversial one is EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and... Oh, I forget the R. I always forget the R. Let me Google it real quick. Eye movement, sensitization, and reprocessing, that's it. Um, so this one involves some kind of eye movement, like staring at someone's finger waving back and forth, or a pendulum, or a light bar, or something like that. And they do um, light exposure therapy, um, light as in not very heavy, not intense exposure therapy uh, while that's happening. Um, it has a big following, but frankly, all the evidence has pretty well demonstrated that the finger moving back and forth or the light bar does absolutely nothing. The idea was that it would stimulate the amygdala because your optic chiasm, which comes from your um, eyeballs and crosses over, would it would be stimulated because it's near the amygdala. But it's actually not even connected to the amygdala, so it's, it doesn't make any sense to begin with. But it doesn't do that. Um, the brain scans show it doesn't do that. Um, and um, it doesn't... Um, if you put it in therapy or take it out of the therapy, you get the same results. So it doesn't carry any of the weight. Um, but it is effective for some people because it has some exposure in it. The problem is the protocol for EMDR says that if exposure gets too intense, you're supposed to back off. And that's actually problematic because if you do exposure and then you have the person back off, that's, that's mimicking what's already naturally happening in their life. They're already going to a thing that is scary and saying, hell no, and backing away and running off. And that makes anxiety and trauma worse. Um, and so has some contraindications there. But like I said, it's not that it doesn't work at all. It's just not the gold standard. And it doesn't, not all of the pieces of it are necessary, even if people who are um, proponents of it say that it is. The, the research does not demonstrate that that, that is the case. Um, that being said, if I was a therapist and I only knew EMDR, I would still do it. I might drop the eye movement piece, but I would still do it because I know that it does work. Now, I would personally go get training in PE or CPT because they work better. But, you know, if you're a therapist out in the community, you're seeing patients all day. You may not have time for that. So continue with EMDR if that's what you know. But if you're looking for something to learn, go with the two gold standard treatments. That would be my opinion. And that's what I'd like to see our nation's veterans, uh, men and women of the armed forces get. I think that's what they deserve is the best treatment, the most effective one that works well in a small number of sessions, you know, 12 ish sessions for most people. Again, some more, some less, depends. Um, that's what I think they should get. So. I want to thank all of my students for all of these wonderful questions. Uh, I want to thank my listeners for, for tuning in here to, to hear what I've said. Uh, like I said, I am answering these based on my knowledge and certainly, you know, if I missed or had an error in any of the data, uh, just let me know, send me an article, send me some info, and I'll be happy to, to post any corrections on the Do Healthy, Be Healthy website. So have a great evening, everyone. Uh, remember to do healthy so you can be healthy.